Our text this evening is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now from this text we are considering the teaching of our shorter catechism that opens up the various duties that pertain to us from it. And last time we considered uh, what was required in this summary moral statement. And in particular, we learned about honor in the context of a God-ordered society. We took time to highlight highlight what the scripture teaches uh, concerning the social relations that we have with one another as superiors, inferiors, and equals, and how honor begins from the heart and then works out in practical ways in our lives. And you will recall that we looked at how it applies to our relation to those who are older than us, those who are in church authority, civil authority, and we made particular application of children's obedience and honoring of their parents. Question 65 asks, what is forbidden in the fifth commandment? The answer is, the fifth commandment forbiddeth the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongeth to everyone in their several places and relations. So as we've seen before, this is the reverse, the other side of the coin of this commandment. The one requires that we are to preserve the honor and perform the duties required. And this one tells us that the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor that is to be given is forbidden. So we have this picture or this doctrinal statement of sins of omission in this commandment. Failing to do what we are required to do. Not giving honor to those to whom it is due. And also sins of commission, breaching honor, positively doing that which is dishonorable and forbidden by the commandment. And so you could think here of things like envying those who are in positions of authority over us or holding them in contempt, rebelling against their lawful commands, cursing them, mocking them, ridiculing speaking evil against them. All of these things are forbidden to us in the fifth commandment. And so you can think of biblical examples here, such as the actions of Ham, the son of Noah, who uncovered his father's nakedness and used it to mock him, and contrast that with the actions of his brothers, who covered the nakedness of their father. Or you could think of Shimei, who was scandalously attacking King David as he retreated from Jerusalem in the civil revolt under Absalom. Or the children, who were mocking the prophet Elisha, calling him bald head. All of these are breaches of the fifth commandment. Well, many of these aspects we brought in to our last message and Many more things, of course, could be inferred from these. Question 66 then deals with 
the promise that is attached to the fifth commandment. And it's taken from uh, the Exodus chapter 20, and it's also highlighted in Ephesians chapter 6. That is the first commandment with promise, namely, that thy days may be long upon the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. And so question 66 takes this up. What is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity. As far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good. In other words, it's not an absolute promise. It's not do this and you're guaranteed to have a long life. It is a general promise and principle, but God is still sovereign. And this is to all such as keep his commandment. Well, in the will of the Lord this evening, we will be considering this aspect of the fifth commandment. But I want to focus upon something that's actually not highlighted, particularly in the Shorter Catechism. But it is extensively opened to us in the larger catechism, particularly question 129 through 30. And it's this, not only are superiors to be honored, superiors also have responsibilities to their inferiors that we need to understand. In short, they are to live honorable lives. And so we want to consider this this evening. The first thing will be, be honorable, and then having considered that, we will look at incentives to honor and to be honorable. Well, then, first of all, be honorable. Those who are in authority or superior to us in age, station, or gifts are not only to be honored, but must labor to be honorable. The honor that is commanded is owed to them as it pertains to our duty to God. But it also must be won by them. So those who are in positions of authority, for example, are not to provoke their children to wrath. There's a responsibility upon them. Well, I referred to the larger catechism. What I want to do is read question and answer 129 and 30. Question 129 asks, what is required of superiors toward their inferiors? Answer, it is required of superiors according to that power they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill, protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, but listen, also honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God has put upon them. Now, there's much in that answer, but what, what I want to emphasize is the last 
the last clause. They are to procure honor to themselves, and in so doing, they preserve their authority that God has given to them. Question and answer 130. What are the sins of superiors? The sins of superiors are, besides the neglect of the duties required of them, an inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure, commanding things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors to perform, counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil, dissuading, discouraging, or discountenancing them in that which is good, correcting them unduly, careless exposing or leaving them to wrong, temptation and danger, provoking them to wrath, or any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. So you see the end of this is a reflection of the end of answer 129. Dishonorable behavior lessens and weakens our authority. Could I ask you to take time at home to pick up these questions and to go through very carefully what is stated there together with scriptural references? And it will be to your sanctification and help as it relates to our theme this evening. Well, then, let's apply this. First of all, parents are to be honorable. The Apostle Paul turns immediately to this after commanding the obedience of children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But then verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of admonition of the Lord. In other words, parents, you have duties to your children in the fifth commandment. And neglect of these will exasperate your children, will be dangerous to them, and will provoke them to wrath and to sin. Well, what are you to do? First of all, you will provide for them. A parent who wastes all that they have on drink and drugs and material enjoyments and abandons his children makes it very, very difficult for those children to honor him. Or more subtly, to simply give yourself to all the things that you like and to take your time as, as if it belongs to you uh, alone and to consume it in recreation and pursuits. So as you do not parent, the children that you have is a breach of this commandment. Dad, will you do this with me? Yes, son. Dad, you said you would do this with me. Yes, yes, I'll do it with you. But the child watches dad spend the whole day playing golf and consuming his time in front of the television. And, and, and sadly, in our day and generation, grown men having their gaming room and their, their den in their home. 
consuming everything in their own lusts. Some of you will remember the song in the 1970s, The Cat's and the cradle, and it's a tragic song. It's a conversation between a child and his father. And the father keeps saying, yes, son, we'll get to it. And he never does. And then the son grows up and does the same to the father. The message is provocation. You're to provide for them. You're to encourage them. To speak words of edification and encouragement, not at the expense of correction. There's an idea in modern parenting that you must never be negative. You must always be affirmative. That will destroy your children. That will create a generation that do not know how to receive criticism, correction, and they will have a victim mentality. You're not to do that. But nor is your relationship with your child to be predominantly one of scolding. So that the only time you take to speak to your children is to put them down and to discourage them. You're to build them up and encourage them. Parents, you have your child's life and future in your hand. And you can destroy them. So we're not advocating molly-coddling your children. We're condemning the provocation of our children to wrath. And if you want your children to rebel against the gospel, and I trust you don't, but a sure way to secure it is here. This is all you need to do exasperate them. Exasperate them. And they will despise the things that you profess to love. Thirdly, you will chasten them in love. Ephesians 6 verse 4 uses the word nurture, and it means discipline. And there are two aspects to discipline. Oftentimes when we speak of discipline, we mean correction. But the two components of discipline are first instruction, so that we are disciples of Christ. He instructs us. He disciplines us in that way. And then when we don't follow that instruction, correction comes in so as to direct us to pursue the instruction. Well, nurture is commanded here in the context of not provoking your children to wrath. Now, again, I say it doesn't mean that we exclude physical correction. Larger Catechism question and answer 130 emphasizes this clearly. We are to correct them when they go out of the way. But it also says this. It is a sin to correct them unduly. It is a sin to correct them unduly. It's a sin to correct them excessively and unbiblically. 
For example, when you discipline your children because your time and your little world is being annoyed and the child is not really doing anything wrong. Or when you correct your children in a selfish, uncontrolled rage, you provoke your children to wrath. Discipline is to be exercised with evident love, combined or administered in the overall context of instruction. Now again, that does not mean that discipline will not be firm and that you can't show displeasure for your children's actions. If I could remind you of the vows many of you have taken in baptism, I ask you, do you promise to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of, of the Lord and to discipline them in firmness and love. Those words are carefully chosen. To discipline them in firmness and love. And as you exercise this in your household, you are to be honorable to your children, aiming to win their hearts, not to terrorize them into conformity, not to simply beat them into submission. You're to chasten them in love. Parents are to be honorable. Secondly, husbands are to be honorable. Ephesians 5, verse 22 that we read says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And we looked at that last time. But it goes on to set a very high standard for husbands' behavior. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You're to be honorable in your superior relationship of authority unto your wives. And the standard man is the self-sacrificial, all-giving love of Christ. The one who is the all-loving husband of the church, who laid down his life for her, who constantly speaks to her in wisdom and love, who corrects her, yes, so as to build her up, who is tender and who is patient. That means that you need to recognize that you exercise a servant headship. Now, another note of caution. Servant leadership is a term that you will hear today, and it doesn't mean what the Bible means. It seems to be an attempt to gut leadership from all authority. That's not where, what, what I'm advocating this evening. But we cannot allow a misapplication of that phrase to discourage us from using it because it's biblical. You have a servant leadership. And men, a sure way to crush your wife is to abuse the headship that God has given you. Some men think, 
I'm the head of the home. Therefore, I will do as I want. And my wife, she will do as I say. I will spend my money in the way that I want. I will use my wife's body in the way that I want. More extreme sins that pertain to this is when men will even physically abuse their own spouses. We have a servant headship. Please understand that a tyrannical headship in your home will provoke your wife to wrath. Such leadership, tragically, but understandably, provokes a woman to despise a man. And then it leads her to the temptation and desire to leave that man. Or if she doesn't do that, to seek affection and comfort elsewhere. Don't you see? What is it doing? It's provoking the wife to sin. Now, if she sins, she's still responsible for her sin. But we ought never to be provoking one another to sin. Instead, your wife's submission will be won by your selfless, serving love. In the same way that our contemplation of the love of Christ is to win the submissive submissive devotion of the church and of the Christian soul. Your headship is a servant headship patterned after the example of Christ. But then we can also say that it is to be a sensitive headship. Turn please to 1 Peter chapter 3 and look there at verse 7. Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. It's not unusual for a man to marry a wife and he loves her and even when The early days of marriage are very pleasurable. There will be occasions when he will wonder, what is this creature that I have married? Because men and women are different. Designedly so by God. And the Apostle Peter is saying here, you need to understand that. God has ordained it to be so, that the husband is stronger and that the wife is weaker. And ladies, please don't despise that and lie to yourselves that it is not so. God has said that it is so. And it's good. She's weaker physically. She's weaker emotionally. And you as a man are not to be like her. But you are to exercise your headship so as to be sensitive to her needs above your own. And brethren, that is a biblical demonstration of strength. You young men, 
you, 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 you go out into the world and sometimes you don't know how much the world affects you. And you begin to ape an unbiblical view of masculinity. Bravado and bluster. And it's terribly weak. It's embarrassingly weak. Sensitive headship means that you will tell your wife you love her, but more than that, you will demonstrate to your wife that you love her. You will delight in her. You will hold her up. You will have eyes and a heart for her alone. Don't be that man whose eyes follow other women and you do it even in front of your wives, making her emotionally insecure. Know her needs and meet them. Know her weaknesses and don't despise her for them or don't be bitter, as Peter says, because of it. But draw alongside to complement her weaknesses with your God-given and biblical strength. Be honorable men in servant headship and sensitive headship. Thirdly, elders are to be honorable. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flocks. So you've got this theme of servant leadership penetrating not just the home but also the church. I think it's fair to say as many husbands have the wrong view of leadership in the home, many elders and ministers have the wrong view of leadership in the church. Now true it is that they rule and they do so under the Lord Jesus Christ. And true it is, they are over the flock and they are to be submitted to. All of that is true and they need to be aware of that. But I have personally known men who aggressively threaten the members of Christ's church with their position. I am the face of Christ to you which is not altogether wrong because the elder is representing the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to you. And that's why contumacy against the church of the court is a horrendous sin because you're rejecting the authority of Christ. But to invoke that language in an attempt to merely bully the members of the church into submission is an abuse of church power. 
We must not attempt to compel by threat or force in an unbiblical way because it is not the God-appointed role for leadership. So elders are to govern. But what does Peter say here? Even though they are lords, they are superiors. He's addressing, I believe, a misuse of that power. And he says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples or examples of the flock. We mustn't misinterpret this. Brethren, leaders in the church are to be strong. Okay? They're to be strong. You're to have confidence in their leadership. You don't want someone in the church who, who is a coward or a pushover or a doormat. But on the other hand, they are to be in their strength models of humility and not proud, brash tyrants. So the elder is not simply to boss people around. He is a shepherd under the Lord Jesus Christ. And the goal of shepherding in the first place ought to be that we lead, right? Shepherd in the east, that's what he did. We're to lead. We're not to aggressively and sinfully drive. That's the kind of thing that is going to create a revolving door in the church. People have a degree of magnetism to a person like this to begin with, but he wreaks havoc in the church. And you you watch, and you'll see this pattern. We're to lead in a way that is firm, biblical, strong, but in a way that is to stimulate love. So consider the Apostle Paul. He's certainly not a weak leader. We've read 2 Corinthians, and he tells them, you better put things in order. I'm coming. When I come, I'm going to use sharpness. And that sharpness will be for your edification. So he's not weak. But if you turn to Acts chapter 20, you'll see an aspect of his strength. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, he has a concern for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he commands the elders in Ephesus, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed or to pastor the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. And he exhorts them on the back of having described his own ministry among them. I shun not to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I preach to you face to face, from house to house. And I wasn't afraid to bring the whole Bible to bear on your, on your, on your life. But look now at verse 37. Paul evidently did this in such a way, and the people appreciated it, so that when Paul left them, They all wept sore 
and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. There's the goal, brethren. To be faithful to God, not not shunning to declare the whole counsel, preaching it publicly, looking people in the eye and preaching it boldly, privately, but yet in a way that leads and draws out the love and affection of the congregation. If you were to ask these men the question that we're addressing this evening, members of the church in Ephesus, do you think the Apostle Paul is an honorable man? They might say, can you not see it? We love this man. That's the goal. Elders are to be honorable. Civil rulers are to be honorable. They are also in a position of authority and leadership, but they succeed to preserve that authority insofar as they see themselves likewise as servants. Not in the first place, as many come to do, to imagine that they are there to be served. We mentioned last time we called them public servants. We reminded you that you are not their lords. But when civil rulers violate this, what happens? Do they grow in the estimation of those they rule? Or do they diminish? Maybe you've all had this experience yourself. You encounter a policeman and he, he, he exercises his authority so firmly yet politely. He's, he's, not, he, he's not a bully. And then you encounter the other kind of policeman. And as, as soon as he comes up to you, he's puffing out the chest and, and he's exercising his authority in an aggressive way. Which of those two men do you deem to be the most honorable? Or when you look at those in civil rule and you recognize them to be greedy politicians, grasping for the maintaining of power, what happens? They sicken those who are under the rule. Go back and read Larger Catechism, question and answer 129 and 130, and you'll see that it is all there provided for you. That means those who are in civil office must avoid all forms of greed, self-serving, oppression, exploitation. They must not be given to these things because they provoke their national children to wrath. I'll give you a few examples. Oppressive taxation, what does it do? Oppressive taxation, biblically, makes the people cry out. Why? Because it's a violation of their rights. It's an illegally enforced form of theft. And it provokes the citizenry. 
We're working hard. We're working hard. And the government is excessively taxing everything that we earn. And then by their financial and economic policies, they're inflating everything and stealing even more of our money by the devaluation of the currency. That kind of thing rightly exasperates a people. Failure and justice is another thing. When evil is not punished and when good is not rewarded. And the Bible tells us many times and places that this is what civil rulers are to do. Take, for example, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14. Or unto governors. These are the governors that we're to submit to. Or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him. Listen, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. How difficult is it to honor those who are not punishing those that do evil, but rather are rewarding them? And on the contrary, they're punishing those that do well. We live in a culture like this. All kinds of moral evil is being rewarded, and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who hold to it are despised. Your rulers are provoking you to wrath. They're dishonorable. In the Old Testament, Samuel warned the people of this in relation to Saul. Give us a king like the other nations. Samuel says, no, that's not what you want. Oh, it is what we want. God says, okay, give them such a king. I will give them such a king. But this is what that king will do. He's going to take their money. He's going to take their children as servants. And he's going to take their lands. And the people are going to cry out. Even why Solomon fell into this dishonorable behavior. So that his foolish policies precipitated angst in the kingdom. And his son exacerbated them. Turn in the Old Testament to 1 Corinthians 12, or 1 Kings 12, and look at verse 3 and 4. 1 Kings 12, verse 3 and 4. That they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake to Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. In other words, he provoked us to wrath. Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter and we will serve thee. Rehoboam receives counsel of the older men. Verse 7, And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day. This is wise counsel. If thou, the king, will be a servant unto this people this day and will serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. Then in come the young foolish counselors. In verse 11, Rehoboam says, And now, whereas my father did lead you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. 
My father hath chastened you, chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Well, what was the result? He provoked the people to wrath so that he caused a division in the kingdom of Israel. So you see in all these areas, inferiors are to honor, but those who are superior are to be honorable. Now let me talk to those of you who are children and who are young. Some of you get old and you look at your, your younger uh, siblings and you want them to honor you, yet you despise them, right? You, you can become a bully to your younger sibling. Always negative, always, always down on them, always telling them, when I was your age, I wasn't the way you are, and yet your parents remember you when you were that age, and they could tell you another story. Do you know what you're doing? You are exasperating your siblings. You're provoking them to wrath, and they will not honor you if you will not be honorable before them. Inferiors are to honor. Superiors are to be honorable. Well, then, we come to our second main point, incentives to honor. Incentives to honor, both uh, if we are inferiors, to honor those who are superiors, and also if we are superiors, incentives to be honorable. Well, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, there is a promise given to the commandment that thy days may be long on the land. That's speaking about the land of Canaan. When we come into the New Testament, Paul quotes but modifies that. And he applies it in words that are relevant to the New Testament age where Canaan doesn't matter. And he says that thy days may be long upon the earth that thy days may be long upon the earth. What is this? Well, consider, first of all, we have a blessing for obedience, a stated blessing for obedience. Paul goes so far as to say that it is the first commandment with promise. Now, there is a sense where that's not strictly true, we could go to the second commandment and there is a general blessing described there that God is showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments and so forth. There's a general blessing appended to the second commandment. But here in the fifth commandment, there is a specific promise. And so we look at the command and we consider the specific nature of the command and then we understand the significance of the promise. That thy days may be long upon the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. What is it? Well, is it not a promise of length of days and preservation promised to Israel in the land in relation to their honoring father and mother? That's clear, isn't it? Well, this promise has a respect 
to the individual. The individual can come here and say, uh, I'm going to honor my father and my mother. He can draw from that a promise that his life will be preserved. Now remember the catechism reminds us as far as it serves God's glory and their good. So not absolute, but a general principle and promise we can draw much encouragement from. And we're going to see in a moment that this promise had a very literal application because we have examples in biblical law of the death penalty for violating the commandment. So it has an application to the individual, but it also has an application to the preservation of the family, the church, and the nation. You see, the family is so significant in the Bible. The family inheritance and covenant line, therefore, according to this promise, has hope that it will not be blotted out. Israel, as the covenant people and church of the Lord, have a promise that they will not be put out of the land as they observe this and, of course, other commandments. But think of it in relation to the family in that psalm that we sang earlier, Psalm 128, which begins with the man that fears the Lord. Blessed is each one that fears the Lord and walketh in his way. And it goes on to describe blessing upon his wife and his children. But then when we come to verse 4 through 6, listen. God says, Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. Do you see how this blessing is bound up in the well-ordered and godly household? Reminds us of an application I made last time that the future of your family and the future of the church and the future of the nation depends upon us ordering our lives biblically and particularly in relation to this commandment. The New Testament teaches us the same thing. You go to Romans chapter 1 and you watch the collapse of a culture. We don't want to retain God in our mind. We turn to idolatry. We give ourselves over to immorality. Heterosexual fornication doesn't satisfy us. Homosexual perversion. And the culture's coming down round our ears. And yet when we come to the end of that chapter and the list of sins is given, disobedience to parents. There it is. You want to see the sign of a collapsing culture? We don't merely have to look at the big things. It goes right down into our homes. Disobedience to parents. Well, there's a blessing for obedience. God says your days 
will be long upon the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. The individual, the church, the nation can all make application of such a promise as they seek to walk in the ways of the Lord. But then there's a curse for disobedience. It's always the way. Promise for obedience, curse for disobedience. Listen to Exodus chapter 21, verse 15 and 17. And he that smiteth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. His days are not going to be long upon the land that the Lord thy God giveth him. Verse 17, and he that curseth his father and his mother. So the first one uses physical violence, an unthinkable thing, we would say. The second one uses the tongue. What's the penalty? He shall surely be put to death. His days are shortened and his life is forfeited. Or perhaps the most well-known example of this, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 18 through 20. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now doing this was a means of preserving their life in the land that the Lord their God gave them. But as to the stubborn, rebellious son, it was the end of his days. He doesn't receive this promise. The parents in this passage of Scripture are seen to be faithful parents, and that reminds us that you can be a faithful parent, and it doesn't guarantee the faithfulness of your son. They've instructed him. They've chastened him. And they said, we cannot do anything with him. And it's only at that extreme level that he's now brought before the authorities in the land, and they deal with him. People say, well, does the civil penalty still apply today? That doesn't concern us tonight. I want you to see in the eyes of God this is a very serious matter. And it warns you how serious a thing God counts all your disrespect of parents and authority and with what vengeance he will punish the breach of his command. For our dishonor, men will die early, and many will perish eternally. Is that not an incentive? The blessing of obedience. Do we not want that? The curse of disobedience. Will we not flee 
from that. This curse of disobedience has application together with the blessing promised to all of our social relations, the institutions of family, church, and state. Thy days may be few in the earth. Let me apply that nationally. God has every right to wipe this nation out for violation of this commandment alone. To make the nation something that that people read off in history books, like many other nations, like the Roman civilization characterized by disobedience to parents in Romans chapter 1. Where do you find out about that? You read it in history, don't you? You see, God, God will keep his word. Thirdly, indebtedness to Christ. We're thinking of incentives. All the law should drive us here. When we see the breadth of the commandment and our failure to live up to its standards, we run to Christ. But what do we see in our Redeemer? We see one who fulfills this command as he does all others. Remember we highlighted Luke chapter 2 verse 51. Our brother mentioned it in prayer this evening that Jesus submitted. He submitted to his father to be obedient unto death. Upon a cross, he did not forget to honor his earthly mother. One of the famous sayings of the Savior from the cross is recorded in John chapter 19, verse 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. When Jesus was dying for our redemption, he provided for the welfare of his mother. What an honorable, what a blessed Savior we have. In this he is our example to be followed. But as he dies on that cross, he is our savior for all of our breaches of the fifth commandment. Actively obeying the precept, submitting to all lawful authority, and then taking the penalty of all of our sin. Not just so that we might be forgiven, but that we might be redeemed Unto holiness. Christ, by his death and this cry from the cross, should motivate you to be honorable and to give honor to all to whom it is due. 
You see, the law drives us out of ourselves to Christ, and we see that he satisfies the law. And then Christ sends us back to the law, compelling us to obedience, motivated by his grace. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in many respects, still fulfills this commandment. How so? He is the loving and most honorable husband of his bride, the church, isn't he? He is the father of his people who provides for our every need and who never provokes us to wrath. And as we will sing in a minute, he is the most glorious of kings. And listen to how Psalm 72 speaks of him. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. What an honorable king. Will we not submit to him and all that he requires of us? And will we not seek in all of our positions of superiority to be honorable as he is honorable? Let us stand for prayer. Our Father in heaven, you have searched us and known us again. And you have set before us duties that are good. Who among us would positively desire to be dishonorable? Lord, help us to take these truths to heart and even to take time to meditate more fully upon them. Whether we are a father or a mother or an elder or a minister in the church or an older sibling or an older person, may we ever seek to live in such a way that wins the honor of those who are our inferiors. Christ has done this. He has won our hearts. And he is all authority in heaven and in earth. And we love to have it so. We We would give it to no other. Lord, clothe us with his righteousness and make it applicable in so many practical ways that we have considered this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.